0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, November the 30th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. Oh. Coming up on the show today, Lay Down Your Heart is a film that follows the story of an artist with Down syndrome. Alex Smythe tells you all about it and shares his interview with the filmmakers. And IKEA, you know them, the big Swedish furniture brand. Well, they are introducing affordable smart home sensors. Marco Flalo will offer his perspective on the new technology. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But today's show begins like it always does with the top story of the day. And this is one the rest of the mainstream media won't be bringing you today because it so specifically talks about disability. But you know where I land on these things. Got to bring these things right to the top of the pile. New research has found that nearly 60% of public spaces in Calgary, Vancouver, and Ottawa are either inaccessible or partially inaccessible to people with disabilities. The report comes from the University of Calgary-led Mapping Our Cities for All project. Factors taken into consideration include parking. Building entrances, washrooms, lighting, table heights, spaciousness, digital menus, and customer service. University of Calgary Associate Professor Victoria Fast wants every part of the country to take notice.
1: I hope it's going to be a wake-up call for all of Canada. So the Accessible Canada Act was enacted in 2019, the first accessibility legislation that we have in the country, and their goal is to be barrier-free by 2040, and
2: this research shows there is a long way to go.
0: Calgary performed the worst of the three cities analyzed, but Fast thinks that all the cities represent a bigger problem.
1: You know, I'm not concerned that Calgary is the bottom of the list as much as I'm concerned that our urban environment is just not accessible. Our built environment is just not accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, People with disabilities have recognized this for decades, uh, and I'm glad the rest of the world is figuring that out,
0: too. Ottawa performed best in the research. I'm going to put big finger air quotes on best. Just over 50% of public spaces analyzed were considered accessible. Staying in the world of accessibility, disability, and mental health, a new three-digit mental health crisis line is launching today. Don Kelly has more.
3: People having suicidal thoughts or other mental health distress can now call or text 988 24 hours a day, seven days a week and get help. Vancouver resident Al Raymendo wishes there had been a simple three-digit helpline when they were struggling a couple of years ago, did a Google search and then felt overwhelmed by all the responses. It was easier to do nothing
1: than it was to reach out to someone and I ended up
2: experiencing a full mental health crisis feeling really suicidal
3: Remendo contributed to the development of the helpline as a person with lived experience Don Kelly The Canadian Press
0: Over to a little bit of media navel-gazing, but this follows up on a couple of conversations on the show yesterday. The federal government has agreed to set a $100 million yearly cap on payments that Google will be required to make to media companies when the Online News Act takes effect at the end of the year. John Kennedy offers a bit of context.
4: The Online News Act compels tech giants to enter into compensation agreements with news publishers for content that generates revenue for companies such as Google by appearing on its sites. Broadcasters and French-language and indigenous news organizations would join newspapers in being eligible for the deals, with draft regulations suggesting the amount of money would be linked to the number of full-time journalists on staff. A formula in the government's draft regulations to implement the bill would have seen Google contribute up to $172 million to news organizations.
0: Now, there's a little bit more here. I want to share some of the political points of view. Federal Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange sees the deal as a big
3: win. Our deal is it's transparent. It's $100 million that doesn't exist right now in this system. It's new money, new revenue. It's good for the new sector. And the other thing is, if there is a better deal struck elsewhere in the world, Canada reserves the right to reopen the regulation
0: saint ange wants this deal to set a template for negotiations with Meta.
3: This shows that uh, this uh, this legislation works, that it's equitable, uh, and now it's on Facebook to explain why they're leaving their platform to disinformation and misinformation instead of sustaining our new system and participating in our news in the in the viability of our news sector.
0: This topic will be explored tomorrow on the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Another story from the world of business, new estimates from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business show small businesses lost more than $38 billion in potential revenue last year because of labour shortages. Michelle Zedekian takes a closer look.
2: CFIB says staffing shortages led to some employers working more hours, reducing their hours of operation, or refusing contracts and services. While the $38 billion number doesn't indicate the Canadian economy lost that amount, it's still a lot of money small businesses could have benefited from. The report says small businesses in the construction sector saw the biggest loss in potential business opportunities, estimated to top $9.6 billion last year, followed by the retail sector losing out on an estimated $3.8 billion. CFIB offered solutions in its report, including work-integrated learning in high school for youth, labour mobility of core workers aged 24 to 64, and tax credits for career extensions, among other policy suggestions. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press.
0: And one more story for you from the world of monetary policy. I know, I know, Dave Brown, what a nerd, always talking about monetary policy on the show, but this one is worth Worth pondering at least a little bit. The Bank of Canada's public consultations on the creation of a digital Canadian dollar showed most respondents are opposed to it. Najoud Al-Maliz crunches the numbers.
5: The central bank released its findings today, which show that more than 80% of respondents strongly oppose the Bank of Canada researching and building the capacity to issue a digital dollar. The vast majority of respondents also say they do not trust the Bank of Canada to issue a secure digital currency. Among the top concerns of respondents was privacy, with the questionnaire revealing low levels of trust in institutions to protect their personal data. The Bank of Canada notes the findings do not necessarily reflect the views of the overall public because participants self-select to respond to the questionnaire. Njedamali in Press, Ottawa.
0: It would be worth at least considering why the Bank of Canada wants to create a digital currency if you consider the reality that a lot of the transactions that you're already doing are digital, whether that be through an Interact card, Google Pay, Apple Pay, credit card, take, take your pick, right? So it, it begs the question of, does the Canadian central bank want to create a cryptocurrency? or a digital version of the Canadian dollar. And I have to admit that unless the Bank of Canada can make a compelling case on why they want to do that, I would also land in that category of 80% who are opposed to it. Okay, let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked this question as the federal government is considering how to modernize the Broadcast Act, and hey, that news story about uh, Google and the federal government reaching a deal on the Online News Act came through yesterday too. How do you think big technology companies are impacting Canadian culture? 0% of you said in a good way, 67% of you said in a bad way, and 33% of you said not at all. JR writes in Tech firms impact Canadian culture through digital transformation, economic growth, media influence, privacy concerns, social change, digital divide, cultural homogenizations, startup culture, regulatory changes, and environmental impact. One thought per sentence, JR. Case in point Canadians can be impacted by what they watch on Amazon, Prime Video, Netflix, and other streaming services that aren't as big as the first ones mentioned. I think we are letting technology take over too rapidly. All my friends I can find online. It's gotten to the point where no one talks to me on the phone anymore unless it's my mom. (laughs) Shout out to everybody's mom out there who loves to make a phone call. And John says, the case for some sort of RTO required time off. Fully remote positions allow for hiring staff in other countries at significantly lower pay without the need for physical presence or immigration processing. It is already happening thank you to everyone who got involved in yesterday's poll today's daily poll is a topic that will be explored a little bit later in the show around some new smart home tech being rolled out by ikea but i want to ask you a bigger broader question on the front end what is stopping you from investing in smart home technology price security reliability or nothing I already have some. And uh, this topic got brainstormed a little bit in the post-show meeting yesterday. Yes, this question is framed a little bit in the negative because the majority of the people at our post-show meeting uh, don't have smart home tech, but one of the new producers on the show, Bob, chimed in and said, smart home tech is awesome. I use I use it around my house. The kids love it. There's security features. It's really, really cool. I enjoy it. So, Alex Smythe, I always wonder but sometimes if... Our producer sample size maybe doesn't fit the overall uh, general population here, because I feel like a lot of people are going to vote nothing. I already have some. Uh, In my case, I have some. I just haven't hooked it up yet, and I have no idea why I haven't done it. I'd probably put laziness as my answer to this question.
6: (laughs) Well, uh, so I've used some smart home stuff in the past, like the, you know, the Google like minis and these like kind of introductory level like home devices years ago when they first started really getting popular, everyone was receiving them as gifts and whatnot. And, you know, I had it for a little while and I was using it. And I just kind of thought after, after a couple weeks, it's like, okay, I really don't need this anymore. And beyond that, it's the idea is like, yes there are some security concerns i don't know if that's overwhelmingly what really um my attention goes to. to for me with technology it's always about reliability i notoriously have unreliable technology in and around my household whether it's internet connections whether it's devices things like that do I really wanna load up my, my routers with even more smart tech to turn off lights, to change uh, like kind of uh, the locks and, and this and that. it's like, I understand the appeal of it. I would love it if it was you know seamless and it worked all the time. If maybe in about five years, it will get to that point, but I don't feel what's there right now. So for me, it's all about the reliability because right now it's not that hard to go and lock a door, unlock a door. Turn the light on turn a light off, I don't see that need or necessity to really adapt to a new yeah. smart home world yet. But, Just yet.
0: But that might that might be, again, very individualistic, right? There are people mm-hmm. who potentially have mobility issues who are already really liking a lot of the smart home tech and rolling it out around the house. And this is where I wonder if maybe someone outside our producer circle, Laura Bain, might be able to reflect broader society here. Laura, where are you at with your smart home technology? No, I we I, oh, I cannot help in reflecting oh, broader
7: society. I, ah, ah. I, I think that's a general, uh, generally a true statement. Um, I, I'm going to write in some answers here. I, I think I just haven't had the interest, and similar to Alex, uh, don't really feel the necessity. So I have 100% seen the benefits it can bring for people. I have a friend with a spinal cord injury who is disabled to have so much more independence and control over his home due to smart technology. But for me, like I don't really have a lot of other technology in the home to connect it to. Um, you know, and I'm also in a relatively easy to manage apartment. I don't have a lot of security concerns or uh, like things to do with the temperature. Like I might if I was in a house. So I sort of feel like that task of learning about the technology, going out to buy it, setting it up, inevitably troubleshooting it is just a lot more hassle for me than say, like walking over to my thermostat and adjusting it up or down one degree, which is sort of the extent of what I have to do usually
0: yeah. okay I mean I mean I think this is good I think this is reasonable even though maybe we're not reflecting broader society it's worth exploring here that three people with different disabilities all are not necessarily using smart home tech in, in a particular way so maybe this is something I'm going to keep exploring and asking about people asking people throughout the rest of the show uh, to get a bit of a broader perspective on because because I, I, I do wonder if we're the outliers or if maybe we are the representative samples so let us Continue to explore that as the show moves along today. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook is where you vote on social media. You can also get involved via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, one 509 4545 one 509 Forty-five, forty-five. Coming up after the break, UFOologist, ufologist Chris Rutkowski, uh, Chris Rutkowski thinks UFOs are something Canadians should be taking seriously as a scientific phenomena. Don Dickinson has more to share on this story in a preview of McLean's magazine. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let me ask you something. How seriously do you take UFOs? They might be something you should take seriously, a scientific phenomenon. That's what UFOologist Chris Rutkowski said wants you to know in a recent article that he penned for mclean's magazine don dickinson has more to share on this story don is the content curator for mclean's magazine on ami audio hey good morning don
8: hey there dave how are you
0: I am well. So Chris Rutkowski is not a stranger to the show. He's popped on a couple times to talk about UFOs. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking to him last year about some of his work. But how? D- I did not ask him this question, Don. How did Chris Rutkowski become known as the UFO guy?
8: <laughs> well, when you read his bio, it's unbelievable. I'm going to start with a quote. He said, most kids go through a space phase, but mo- space... Phase, But mine kept going after I watched NASA launch its Gemini and Mercury spacecraft on TV. And it kept going after I joined my high school UFO club in Winnipeg. Uh, when I enrolled at University of Manitoba, I opted for a science degree. I wanted to be a, a, an astronomer. And I would have been happy to spend all my days looking up. So you, you have a feeling that this this man was born to it.
0: Yeah, deep passion for space, deep passion for the universe and looking beyond our little teensy tiny rock in our little teensy tiny solar system in our little teensy tiny galaxy uh, in a much more uh, broad universe or maybe even a multiverse if uh, we really want to get wild. So, Don, what's the case that Raskowski is making on why Canadians should be tracking occurrences of UFOs?
8: Well, apart from the obvious, there's an actual practical reason. He says that our airspace is becoming really commercialized uh, with package deliveries. And, you know, he's worried about the times when there's going to be all these drones from Amazon Prime. Uh, he's he's talking about Elon Musk's internet providing Starlink satellites in the sky. And he's just saying that there's going to be um, uh, very, very valid reasons to track UFOs because, uh, a major one of them, of course, being safety. Airline pilots, for example, regularly report UFO sightings, which often turn out to be civilian drones. And as this becomes more the case, it's going to be much more uh, crowded in our skies, mm.
0: Dave. How does the Canadian government handle these kinds of sightings?
8: <clears throat> well, uh, the whole purpose of the article is to kind of emphasize that we don't really do it um well <laughs> he says right now there's a patchwork network of uh agencies um that accept reports uh, but they don't particularly communicate well with each other um canada should h- his uh, opinion uh, establish a central repository where new ufo reports can be collected and analyzed each year that office should produce a public report which in the uh, which Basically, it's the same way the Supreme Court of Canada releases its annual year in review. So he's saying that, yeah, okay, fine, we are tracking, but there's like three or four agencies that that, that get these reports and they're not doing a great job of, of compiling it into one
0: resource don i am all the way in on a belief that intelligent life exists elsewhere in our gargantuan universe (laughs) as to whether or not we will ever make contact with said intelligent life uh, is pretty much impossible because it's millions and millions and millions of light years away but ufos more specifically imply some kind of contact where are you at on ufos whether it be before or after reading this article
8: well, Dave, it's difficult to find intelligent life on this planet sometimes. So
0: <laughs> I, It's uh... oftentimes difficult to find intelligent life in Studio 7 <laughs> at 1090 Don Mills Road.
8: So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's the question of our age, really. I mean, you know, they often say that this world would would benefit from a common um not necessarily a common enemy, but just a, a commonality so that, you know, if it, we if we knew somebody else was out there, we might think of ourselves more as the uh, earth as opposed to all our different uh, grievances that we have at the moment, you know. Um, I would like to think that there is. I've never personally had an experience with it, you know, Um, I mean, you know, you often see things that you think, oh, that's a little weird, but then it turns out to be satellites or something like that, or, yeah. or just, you know, <laughs> so... Up until now, I haven't had any proof, and I'm kind of a proof kind of gal, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, I like that. You got it. You got to. You got to show. You got to show it to me. You're like Missouri. You're the show me state. You got to let me. You got to let me know that it's out there for me to truly, truly believe. Don, I love this kind of stuff. Thank you for bringing this. We should uh, talk to Chris again on the show. I, I love talking to Chris about uh, yeah. what's out there in the sky. But let's move on to the world of arts. Your next featured article is called. A Taste of Europe by Jean Grant. It dives into the home of Toronto artist Eve Gordon. She hand-painted the walls of her Victorian home in the big smoke to replicate patterns and scenery inspired by Italian Renaissance artist Paolo Veronese. So how did Eve Gordon's journey as an artist begin?
8: Uh, Well, it it was fairly... um regular i would say during university she began painting uh and and then in 1976 she moved to paris and displayed her whimsical oil paintings in several shows uh and did quite well uh but then you know life took over and she met her husband and you know kids came along and all the rest of it and it kind of got put on the back burner in 1984 uh she and her husband uh found a red brick victorian in rosedale and she did a little bit of decorating at the time but nothing too much until a certain event occurred.
0: Right. So that's uh, 2020. The pandemic kicks in. How did that uh, impact her process and this project?
8: Yeah. Well, as with the cases of the whole world, it very much affected her. When COVID kicked off, she decided to finish the job uh, of decorating our home and she ordered scaffolding and and paint and she began um painting the entire house and I'm talking about painting that is just absolutely amazing almost like the old uh, frescoes you know beautiful beautiful work she said I wanted to transform my home into something magical like the villas and chateaus I saw in Europe so yeah really big scale work
0: Don, there's a couple pictures popping up on screen right here. They are so detailed, it's almost impossible to describe, but I will do my best here. Multicolors, like multi, multi, multi colors and shading. So there's a real spectrum of color being used. Wall to ceiling to floor, ornate designs Little specifications here and there. The rooms themselves also have a little bit of interior design beyond the paint on the walls. So chandeliers, mirrors, etc., antique chairs, English daybeds for the bedrooms. Dawn, it looks like a late medieval or Renaissance palace.
8: Oh, yeah, it definitely is, Dave. I mean, it's, it's a work of art. We're not talking about your your average painting here. Every single wall, as you say, every single piece of uh, the place, uh, even the window frames are all beautifully hand-painted. And I mean, in just the most intricate of, of, of paintings, you know, it's uh, it's really a, a stunning work. And, and of course, she likes to show it off.
0: Yeah. Wh- wh- how, uh, how do her guests feel when they come for a dinner party at, at Eve's house?
8: Well, I'm hoping for an invitation, Dave. <laughs> uh, she says that she's eager to show it off now that she's spent all this time. I mean, basically, it's it's four years of work, right? Um, she takes days to cook elaborate meals from her uh, various European cookbooks and, uh, and uh, French recipes and whatnot. She says it's really fun to watch people react to the house because usually they're speechless in the beginning, especially if they haven't any forewarning. They just walk in and they think, oh, my God. I mean, it's like... Walking into basically, you know, a a European chateau and, and just being overwhelmed with the intricacies of the work.
0: Don if you ever need a career change, lifestyles of the rich and famous, I think I think that could be that could be the next path for you because that's what that's what this reminds me of on this one over here. Hey Don, I don't know if you heard in the first segment of the show, we're talking about a smart home technology today and that's because later in the show Marco Flalo is going to stop by and talk about some new tools that IKEA is launching in the smart home space and so far all three of the folks spoken to on the show, myself, Alex Smythe, Laura Bain, none of us are using any smart home technology. It's the Daily Poll, Don, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. What is stopping you from investing in smart home technology? Price, reliability, security? Or, Don, are you the outlier? Are you loaded up with some smart home tech?
8: I'm the outlier, Dave. Yeah. What can I say? Well, you know what it is? It was an instant, instant, instant incident. Sorry. That we had about, uh, I guess it was about four years ago now. We were robbed, right? Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah. And you know, you only have to have that happen once once and uh you uh majorly invest in security so uh yeah we went out and bought a high security system it's basically wired to everything it's wired to the doors it's it's uh, it's one of these ones that has little you know pads that you place on anything that can be opened so it's wired to the windows the doors oh wow uh basically if the cat moves i know about it so um uh, yeah yeah we we get an alert if anything happens on our phones and and uh you know that way we can and of course we both work nearby so it it's um it's something that really we felt at the time you know you felt, you feel very insecure when something like that happens right so
0: Don, I am grateful for you to be the outlier. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry that life event happened, but thank you for sharing your perspective. I'm I'm, I'm glad that people are making the use case here because we know there is a use case. The three of us in the first segment, the three millennials in the first segment just couldn't make the use case. So count on the boomers to step in and help out. (laughs) Don, thank you for this.
8: Okay, then, Dave. Have a good day.
0: That is Don Dickinson with a preview of McLean's magazine on AMI-audio. Don is the content curator of that show. You can find it weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, Lay Down Your Heart is a film that follows the story of an artist with Down syndrome. Alex Smythe will tell you about it and share his interview with the filmmakers. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Lay Down Your Heart is a documentary highlighting artist, actor, and playwright Niall McNeil. Niall lives with Down Syndrome and has spent years performing with Caravan Farms Theatre in British Columbia. Alex Smythe had a chance to chat with Niall and, and the director of the film, Mary Clements. Alex, hello again. Hello again, Dave. So Alex the focus of the film is Nile's life and career but what's the bigger picture?
6: Yeah so it's it really uh, kind of exploring how Niall really has built up his uh, kind of his his life and his career and and relationships that he's really made along the way. So this film is produced by the National Film Board of Canada and that's to say it really highlights Nile and that that unique connection that he shares with with everybody. And so as part of my interview with him and Marie, I, I really wanted to find out from now like how he felt being able to share his story with all the audience. And this is what he had to say.
9: My stories last to film. Um well how I feel right now is um I'm i I'm okay. Um this, this film is actually got to It just is all about my family, my family, how I'm trying to build up with uh, joy and happiness and uh, relationship.
0: Alex, Mary Clements is the director of the film. What's her relationship to Nile prior to the project?
6: Well, Dave, it really depends who you ask on this situation. Because okay. as, as you heard from Nile, he mentioned his family. And in what he means in in the context of this film is all the the actors and the other creatives he's worked with at the Caravan Farm Theater have l- literally become family in his mind. So Marie in this situation is his ex-wife. Um, he has sons that are older than him. He has uncles, like sisters, brothers, like it, it's it's that kind of relationship that he's built with them. But for Marie, she's worked with Niall for years at the uh, Caravan Farms. Uh, she's really worked with him on multiple projects other than this film. So she really wanted to highlight his unique view and, and outlook on the world. And this is what she had to say about why she wanted to be involved with Niall's story.
3: Nye and, and I go back quite a while, and uh, I've known him as a you know fellow artist, and he's a multidisciplinary artist. So I've seen a lot of his work, and um, and so we you know we've gone back and forth, and he's seen a lot of my work. And the thing that intrigues me the most about his work as an artist is that one, he can work in different genres, and two, that he has this uh, accessibility to. Um, to his imagination that kind of uh, is able to blow out what you might expect. So it's always this kind of really alive uh, engagement with whatever he's doing, his art and, and people that work with him. And I think that's, you know, it's also extended to how he sees not just who he works with and the topics he's, you know, diving into, but also um, his relationships with us, you know, colleagues um, that have become, uh, you know, more grounded, uh, in this relationship, um, that, that he kind of decides often, you know, uh, so for example, um, we're, you know, we're good friends, but we're also exes. And, uh, <laughs> and we worked on lay down your heart and we worked on a short film of mine called pilgrims together. And, uh, we're constantly, you know, talking about stories and art and, uh, and he has these kind of relationships with artists all across the country.
0: Alex, go a little bit deeper on Niall's uh, unique conception of what constitutes family.
6: Yeah, so it's I, I. It takes a bit of time for you to really kind of. Understand the context of what is being said and in his description of family within this film because at first when you uh, It basically starts off within the first couple minutes, you know, he's describing Marie Who's the director of lay down your heart as his ex-wife? So you, you think okay? Well, you know, it's I guess that's just the situation or the the relationship, but then you start identifying Oh, well, you know, here's his son. It's like, well, wait a minute his son Appears to be quite a few years older than the Nile is, and and then slowly as more people are introduced, the story starts to broaden. That you you realize this family tree that he has constructed is one that is really born out of of love and connection with the people he's worked with around him. All these members of Caravan Farm, so they're it, it seems quite literally to be over a dozen people that have been interwoven into his life in a really personal way. And and now, describe a bit deeper some of the connections that he has he has formed with some of the members of the Caravan Farm Troop.
9: I'm start by uh, me and Marie's sons, Stephen. Uh, Stephen's uh, been a family, he's uh, been my friend uh for several years at the caravan farm. Um, he's an actor there, but he i he he directed the Ricky Haven family circus to Stephen. So the rest of it is kind of uh, a different ex-wife thing like Adoline Sagal's one and Marie's one.
0: So, Alex, when you're talking about such a wide-ranging uh, group of people that want to be captured in this documentary to tell the story, how did Marie go about capturing this idea of family?
6: Yeah, it was very interesting because uh, she used the, the construct of having conversations with Nile and having different people just— talk and talk about their relationships and in their connections and the history together and that's really how this this film unfolds it's all through conversation it's the setup is very simple it's on a a pretty much a full white backdrop um scene in a in a studio and sometimes there's uh bits of colorful art that's being kind of put up behind him that is art he has presented but it's really lets you focus in on these conversations. And and at first it starts with, as you mentioned, Stephen. That's really the first uh, member of his family, his son that you you meet in this conversation. And then slowly, as the film unfolds, you meet more members of this family tree that he, he has. And in the background, family tree quite literally is being drawn up and presented in the backdrop. So it, it, it really shows how he he views these the relationship that he has formed with members of this acting troupe and, and how special it is to him. And, and you hear from them as well and how special Niall is for them. And Marie kind of dives a bit deeper on how unique this is and, and why it's so important to really focus and celebrate how Niall has really constructed these relationships.
3: One of the things Nile does uh, kind of extremely well is is he's a visual artist. So I kind of found a way um, in through that and, and really looking, you know, as artists, we're always writing, we're always um, composing, we're always uh, painting depending on what we do, but that's a constant thing. That's, you know, that energy is always moving inside of us. So I really felt through his, his new kind of art form, visual art, we could kind of go into it. Um, but I also found um, just the sensibility of being able to understand that, Um, Families uh, in a modern way are made up of those we choose. And I think uh, Nye has done such an amazing, um, I don't know, I was gonna say job, but kind of of an amazing part of his ability to create over decades is to collect family um, that are all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places. And I really felt it was, you know, it's a good time to think about that in the world. Uh, when, you know, um, everything wants to separate us. Um, And I think most of us as humans kind of want to lean into each other and we want to be adopted and we want to be loved uh, like family.
0: Alex, you mentioned this film was made in partnership, Lay Down Your Heart, with the National Film Board of Canada, who just do fantastic work. And what's really cool is if you want to stream this movie, you can go to nfb.ca and do it.
6: Yeah, Dave, it's completely free. You just, as you say, go to the website nfb.ca, search lay down your heart and you will find this film. It's available in audio described formats or described uh, video, and it also has closed captioning as well. So it it provides accessible formats for people to be able to uh, connect and engage with this film as well. So it's definitely worth something to, to check out if, if you wanna learn more about Nile's unique take on family. Lay Down Your Heart,
0: nfb.ca, awesome work there by uh, the folks involved in this film, but also awesome work from the uh, folks done at the NFB uh, more broadly. So nfb.ca, be sure to check that one out. Alex, don't go too far because in one minute you're coming back for the uh, weather update. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes.
1: Canada's main stock index posted just a small gain yesterday. Toronto's TSX index closed 79 points higher at 20,116. New York's Dow Jones average added 13 points and the Nasdaq lost 23. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 165 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little lower at 73.51 cents US. The federal government has reportedly chosen Boeing as the manufacturer to replace the Canadian Armed Forces. Forces, aging Patrol planes. Federal Cabinet Ministers are expected to announce the sole source contract decision today. Sources say the choice was made earlier this week at a special Treasury Board meeting to buy 16 P-8A Poseidon surveillance aircraft. They would replace the half-century-old CP-140 Auroras. The deal, reportedly worth $8 million, closes the door on Quebec-based business jet maker Bombardier's push for an open bid. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen.
0: Thank you very much, Karen. Back to Alex for the weather story of the day.
6: Alex, looking ahead to the weekend in British Columbia. Yeah, Dave, uh, B.C. has been under a uh, prolonged high pressure system, but starting today and throughout the weekend, it's going to be replaced by a series of low pressure systems, bringing a lot of moisture to the region. So specifically out along the, the west coast of Vancouver Island, today you could see upwards of 60 millimeters of rain and precipitation. Obviously, once you get to the higher elevations, that may change to the mix of snow and rain. And the whole region really has been begging for for snow especially when you get into the mountains into those ski resort regions because a lot of them have been delayed in opening because they just haven't had that moisture so this system and the ones that are going to follow tomorrow and into the weekend will provide that moisture that said as you go kind of more in the Strait of Georgia where Vancouver on the east coast of Vancouver Island as well that's going to be a lot less moisture so around upwards of 20 millimeters of rain the big challenge is, okay, it's gonna be rain on the lower lying side. Once you get in the mountains, hopefully it's gonna be more like those the snow and the heavy snow that you really want to see when you're going out for skiing conditions. The biggest problem though is, while the precipitation is coming now, warm weather is set to come back next week. So we don't quite know how long. the the snow and and wet conditions will last in the region.
0: When I was a traffic reporter at CBC, I used to describe conditions like that as sloppery. A little bit slippery, (laughs) a little bit sloppy. Sloppery. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. Coming up after the break, the CNIB in New Brunswick is bringing back a couple of in-person events for the holidays. Community reporter Natalie Fougere will give you the scoop. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The CNIB in New Brunswick is bringing back a few in-person social events for the holiday season. Community reporter Natalie Fougere has the highlights. Natalie is in Moncton, New Brunswick. Hey, good morning, Natalie. Nice to chat with you once again.
5: Good morning, Dave. It's uh, as usual. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, always, (laughs) always lovely to talk to you. So, Natalie, I think I know the answer to this question, but how are you feeling about a couple uh, shindigs here in the holiday season?
5: Oh, I'm feeling very, very excited and looking forward for this to it to be coming back for some of these activities.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's it's funny. In my brain, I'm thinking to myself, it's 2023. We're years and years and years removed from the start of the pandemic. But when you really think about it, the in-person events, especially for what I would call more disability-centric organizations, they've only really kicked off in the last sort of six months to a year for, for good reason, right? A little extra caution for people who might be a little bit more at risk. But what do you think the vibe yeah. is generally for folks to uh, get back and, get and do a little bit of uh, mingling and hanging out?
5: Oh, I well, having been part of a few local in-person activities already that have been started, I know that people are just so excited and uh, really, uh, really looking forward to seeing each other once again.
0: Which uh, which parts of the province are going to be throwing these parties? Because it's not just one or two places. There's a few going on.
5: Exactly. So, there's like three events that I have here that I I can mention. So, the first one will be happening in Miramichi on December the 5th. So, very soon. uh, It's going to be organized by the Alliance Club. It's going to be a, a... Christmas dinner, as uh, people in Miramichi used to have uh, before, so they're going to be hosting a dinner, Uh, so that'll be very exciting. Also, uh, the next event will be on uh, December the 11th here in Moncton, so it's going to be held by the Lions. It's going to be at a different location, though. This time, it's going to be at a a community centre on Joy Street in Moncton, and uh, the other event is um, on the 15th, I do believe there's going to be an afternoon at the Fredericton library. So that's going to be another like Christmas theme activity. So these are great opportunities for people to get out.
0: Get out and about, enjoy the time of the season, absolutely. Now, there are some points of contact here. Uh, it's it's going to be uh, Caroline Leblanc at cnib.ca. I'm going to spell that out a little bit later, Natalie, because I know for the next CNIB event you want to talk about, uh, Carolyn is also the person people should be reaching out to. So if it's not just shindiggery or a party that you're looking for, there's also CNIB's Tech Talk Tuesdays. They're helping bring people together and offer a little bit of insight in the uh, rapidly and fastly changing world of technology. Natalie, why did you want to take a little time to highlight what CNIB is up to with the Tech Talk Tuesdays?
5: Well, I think that it's definitely an event that does bring people together. And now and day in this changing world, as you say, technology is so important. And I've it, it gives a good chance for people that live with vision loss to talk amongst each other about what's new, whether it's uh, like an Apple product, Android or screen readers or anything like that. So uh, it's, uh, it's been going on for many years, but now with the coordinator who had uh, retired, that was there before three volunteers decided to uh, take over this event. So it's going to be online on zoom. So anyone, Can actually have access to it like a CNIB client and it's going to be a it's a great opportunity of discussion sometimes demonstration people can ask questions and I I do learn a lot when I'm part of these
0: events for sure. Natalie what's some of the tech that you find yourself uh, messing around with Uh, the the iPhones smartphones iPads other adaptive tech what what do you find yourself playing around with? (laughs)
5: Well, I do have an I I'm on my iPhone right now. Uh, I do have an iPad. I also work with a PC. I want to say an old-fashioned PC, but because I do work with jaws like the screen reader as well, but I and I find it does still have its purpose. So with a lot of the apps that are going on, there's so much to learn. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's great.
0: Uh, Natalie, the daily poll today is actually about technology. Folks can find it at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And this is actually about smart home technology. So maybe that might be like the Amazon devices, uh, Apple Home, Google Home. And the question that I'm asking, I know it's framed a little bit in the negative, but it just felt like maybe that was going to elicit a better response. But it's what's stopping you from investing in smart home tech? Uh, The price, the reliability, security... Or the other answer is nothing. I've already got some. Where are you at with the smart home tech?
5: Well, that's kind of why I'm laughing because I do have both devices that were mentioned uh, at home, which I won't say their name because then it could start.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
5: Uh, Actually, but a lot, I heard a lot of people saying for security reasons, because it like that we are listened to and everything like people are are a bit hesitant or not knowing where to go. But I, I find that it does have its purpose for sure.
0: Outstanding. So if folks want to get involved on that one, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And if you want to take part in CNIB's Tech Talk Tuesdays, they are run over Zoom, which is fantastic. And for more information, here you go. Now I'm going to say it again, caroline.leblanc at cnib.ca. I'll spell that out for you guys. Caroline is pretty self-evident, but c-a-r-o-l-i-n-e dot Leblanc. L-E-B-L-A-N-C at CNIB.ca. B.ca. Caroline.leBlanc at cnib.ca. So, Natalie, speaking of the daily polls, there was one earlier this week that we asked that caught your attention. You reached out, you said, I've got to, I've got to share an opinion on this one. We were talking all about low-cost or no-cost holiday gifts and baking was one of the big winners on that poll. You wanted to at least put the idea out about what about healthy food as a great gift over the holiday season?
5: Yes, um, absolutely. So uh, I what I've discovered in the last few years uh, that I find is very beneficial are um, Epicure uh, products. So these are products that are like a, not only low sodium, but they're also gluten-free and nut-free. And there's so many different, um, they're, they're different seasonings. So whether it's in bottles or in packages uh, of different seasonings to make in order to make different recipes. And that what's great is that on packaging, now I know that's visual, but they're also found online. There's uh, recipes like with each pack of seasoning uh, that are that's able to be used. And that because of all that, like low sodium, it does make for healthier options even some of the uh, dessert options uh, they are actually healthier options than uh, than usual so these are definitely great uh, great gifts and they have different packages even spe- uh, specifically for like for the holidays and for different occasions so i, I found that these products were really uh, I-, I found them extremely beneficial since i've discovered them
0: You know, one of the best gifts that I ever got at the holidays was a homemade bottle of spice from my cousin and his wife at the time. Natalie, it was such a thoughtful, amazing gift, and it tasted so good. So I think this is a great example, right, of handing somebody a gift that is going to be useful, they're probably going to like, they can incorporate it in their life, and let's be honest, it's not going to take up too much clutter space either
5: no that's exactly it and it, it is actually it is quite affordable for the the quality that we
0: get yeah absolutely so again the name of this brand is epicure epicure e p i C-U-R-E, Epicure. And you can visit Epicure.com to uh, learn more about uh, those spices. Hey, uh, Natalie, thank you for taking the time to uh, chat this morning. All the best to you over the holiday season. Enjoy those parties and those shindigs and talk to you in 2024.
5: Thank you so much. Happy holidays to you as well.
0: That's Natalie Fougere, a community reporter in Moncton, New Brunswick. In one minute, a. Famous Mockumentary is getting a sequel. Laura Bain will tell you about it in the entertainment report. But first, Apple is adding new emergency features on iPhones. Mike Debusky has the story in Tech Trends.
10: Newer iPhone models are now capable of sending text messages. Even when your phone doesn't have service, Jennifer Pattinson-Tui with The Verge says it's done by sending a signal to low-flying satellites.
3: Apple's Emergency Roadside Assistance Service is using Global Star's satellite system, which are 24 satellite constellations that are low-Earth orbit satellites.
10: She says it's designed primarily for emergency situations when your car's on the side of the road in a remote area, which also means...
3: You don't actually have to have a AAA membership. Uh, you can still connect just by typing roadside in a text message you do need to actually be out of cell phone service or wi-fi service for it to work
10: and it's only available on the iphone 14 and 15 which means for now at least no support for Android users. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News.
0: I think there's a certain Captain Obvious this. there, uh, Mike. Hey, it's a feature for Apple, so no luck for Android users. I, I think anybody who was an Android user probably already assumed that. I'm teasing you, Mike. You do great work over there on the Tech Trends every day. Let's bring in Laura Bain for the Entertainment Report. Laura, a sequel to an 80s cult classic mockumentary has been announced what's going on
7: yeah i'm wondering if anyone out there is taking a guess when we say mockumentary from the 1980s so we are talking about a sequel to this is spinal tap oh my gosh um, one of the best known mockumentaries of all time so 1984 about the fictional british metal band this uh, spinal tap rather whose claim to fame was being one of england's loudest bands <laughs> um, <laughs> not greatest but loudest and the film of course was a complete cult classics. So for the sequel, Rob Rayner is going to be taking up his role as director Marty DeBergie again. So that's exciting. And he's shooting, of course, a second uh like a sequel. Like I'm not saying that well. The idea is he's shooting a second documentary on the band and that's kind of the raison d'etre for the sequel. And What's exciting is that it's going to be bringing back pretty much all of the original Mm. cast for this film. So I think that's really important. And there's been some other announcements around it. It's going to feature Paul McCartney, Elton John, Garth Brooks. Oh, my gosh.
0: You know,
7: (laughs) just some small names there. Uh, And other surprises have been teased. I'm kind of curious if Fran Drescher is going to come back because she was in the Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind Um. of genuinely curious how they're going to handle this, Laura, because 40 years is a long, long time, and a lot of the artists depicted were already... I'm going to say a smidge older, I don't wanna get into ageism Mm -hmm. over here, but even in the original This Is Spinal Tap, a lot of the folks were already at least portrayed as a little bit older, so I kind of wonder how they're going to manage that time notion. And I also wonder how self-referential this is going to be, how meta it's going to be, sort of the understanding of playing in reboot culture, and maybe taking swipes at themselves within reboot or sequel culture.
7: Yeah, those are, those are really good thoughts. Um, I didn't like, I didn't look up how old the actors are, but I think you're right that we may be getting into like senior citizen territory here. So that will be, <laughs> that will be interesting. <laughs> like if they're still out rocking or they're just like reflecting back on that time. Um, and a lot of Spinal Tap was, uh, was improvised. So I'm curious if they're going to be doing that. Cause that'll be oh, really yeah. cool to see with like Elton John and Paul McCartney kind of doing some, some improvised stuff there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, shooting is set to start in February, and the release is planned to be in March of 2024, so that'll be the 40th anniversary of when the original film came out.
0: Oh, amazing. Amazing form of mockumentary. Like you said, This is Spinal Tap was probably one of the first breakthrough mockumentaries for fear of making too many ref of doing comedy, because I think you can really lean into absurdity. You can create characters and just give them those threads or morsels of reality, and then just, to borrow a spinal tapism, turn it up to 11 and just really get into oddities and weirdnesses. And maybe I'll point to uh, two forms of mockumentary that I think are really standing the test of comedic time. One of them was the American television show The Office, which really started as a straight documentary, uh, mockumentary. In the end, it evolved to be a little bit more narrative, but that was always the style, right? It was meant to be capturing the life in the average American office, and it just worked because you built these awesome characters. And then maybe a little bit more strict to the genre, there's a director named Christopher Guest who's made a series of amazing documentary, uh, mockumentaries. His best being a movie called The Best in Show, which is all about the the competitive dog show world, it is uproariously absurd and funny. And I think there's just something that Mockumentary lets you do that allows for some kind of social commentary without overtly having to make the commentary.
7: Yeah, that might be it. And I did appreciate, by the way, the Turn It Up to 11 reference. Thank you. Um, But when I I brought this story forward, I thought, you know, I haven't seen a lot of mockumentaries other than uh, This is Spinal Top, but that's not true when it comes to TV shows. And you mentioned The Office, but also like Parks and Rec, Mm -hmm. Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. I thought about Trailer Park Boys. So I do really appreciate it when it comes to television. And I think it's, you know, yeah, it does kind of allow you to make that social commentary. There's something about the awkward pacing that I love in a mockumentary. Like it there's a lot of pauses um that really work I think for me on a comedic level and also just like some of the camera work that's sort of shaky and sort of haphazard I I find very entertaining. So yeah i I like it when it comes to the t v genre now this is a this is a sequel uh what do you feel about sequels are they Ugh. do they work sometimes or in general you're not a fan?
0: I think they can work, but I'm just so sick of what I would call uh, laziness in Hollywood right now that this is spinal tap was something that was deeply original, and I just don't know if the sequel can capture that magic and I think more often than not especially in the contemporary collection of sequels, it's very difficult to capture the magic.
7: Yeah, well, I don't know if it's gonna help help you out on this at all, but the director did say they've had a lot of calls over the years to make a sequel, but they didn't want to do it unless they could really do it right and do it credit. So, you know, I guess we'll see.
0: I like that. Yeah. I like that. I like that as a mentality, right? I, I I think that if the director can acknowledge that, that hey, we want we didn't want to come to the table until we had a great idea. Maybe unlike the uh, 15 years between the first Zoolander and the second Zoolander, it's like <laughs> right. we just went back. We just went back and wanted to make a movie, and the reality was a stinky movie. Same thing with Anchorman too. Like I think, especially in comedy, you can really lose the magic.
7: Yeah, you definitely want to see them doing something different with it
0: for sure. Yeah. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. I know I always keep you over time uh, during the course of the day. I hope I don't make you late for class every time I do this.
7: No, no no classes (laughs) today to worry
0: about, Dave. Okay, fantastic. I promise not to abuse the privilege. Laura, have a great day. you as well. That is Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. A very short regional news update and then Brock Richardson wants to talk about some of the fallout that happens after a Paralympic qualification, particularly in team sports. A real bit of insider knowledge from an elite Paralympian. So Brock, Brock Richardson is going to share a little bit of lived experience in about uh, two minutes and 30 seconds. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV and beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, also available online at amiplus.ca, only the audio version of which some folks say is better, because then you don't need to look at how many carbohydrates I ate last night, or maybe you're listening on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. It's Thursday, November the 30th, 2023, let me tell you, November 29th was a very carbohydrate-heavy day. Would you believe that I ate pasta for lunch and dinner? A couple tater tots were sneaked in there too because I'm actually just a six foot three, 300 pound toddler. Coming up in the second hour of the show, IKEA is introducing affordable smart home sensors. Marco Aflalo will offer his perspective on the tech. And. The Holdovers is a holiday movie that's been garnering quite a few positive reviews. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely gives you his thoughts on the film. But the hour begins with a short regional news update. Beginning in the prairies, the Saskatchewan government is going to start sending breast cancer patients out of province for screening. Calgary company Clearpoint will conduct about 1,000 scans. Health Minister Everett Hindley says that provincial wait lists necessitated the decision.
4: But as we know, uh, cancer uh, can't wait. And, and it, it, it requires a diagnosis and treatment on a, on a very urgent basis. Um, and so that's what, uh, you know, was one of the options presented to us.
0: Henley does not think that using the private sector will be a long-term
4: plan. This is a short-term solution to be able to cut this waitlist down, provide women with these, uh, with these options to travel to Calgary to get this done and to eliminate that waitlist and make sure that we're on top of additional cases uh, as, they, as they come in. The plan is expected to
0: cost about $3.5 million. And over to Quebec, Quebec's legislature has unanimously adopted a motion in defence of Christmas. Emily Javeski explains.
2: All 109 members of the National Assembly who were present voted in favor of the motion, which denounces attempts to polarize events that unite Quebecers and that have been part of the province's heritage for generations. In an October discussion paper, the Canadian Human Rights Commission describes statutory holidays related to Christianity as examples of religious discrimination because they're the only statutory holidays linked to religious holy days. It says that as a result, those who celebrate other religions may need to request special accommodations. Emily Joweski, The Canadian Press.
0: It must be the end of November because, of course, uh, the media wants to explore the idea of the war on Christmas. And guess what? Even this show is not immune to a little bit of that. Uh, This will be a topic tomorrow on the news panel with Michelle McQuigge and Joita Gupta. And I will be uproarious and absurdist throughout that conversation, uh, probably much to the annoyance of Michelle and Joita. But hopefully much to your annoyance delight. Let's head over to Brock Richardson and chat about sports. Brock, you did such a great job covering the day in, day out of Team Canada athletes at the Parapan American Games in Santiago, Chile. The athletes are home. A lot of them are hanging the gold medals and putting up their trophies and maybe getting to do a little bit of glad handing and shaking of hands at City Hall or provincial legislatures. It's super cool. But one of the things that you really bring to this role, not just as a broadcaster or a journalist, is your own lived experience as a para-athlete so there's actually some pretty interesting machinations that occur after a qualification for the paralympic but maybe not necessarily the athletes themselves that did the qualifying i don't think i did a very good job explaining that there so go a little bit deeper
11: yeah so uh something that happens in canada is when, when we're talking about team qualifications only in this so, country, so so like wheelchair basketball, goalball,
0: wheelchair rugby, those kinds of sports. Exactly.
11: So something that happens here is the Canadian Canada has a thing called equal opportunity in sports, which means that every sport organization must have a selection camp for each sport. So even though the country has qualified, they must have a selection camp just in case somebody comes and has. A great selection camp, and then they would then get a spot. So we're gonna do this in a bit of parts. But I just want your thoughts on what is your thoughts on this whole equal opportunity, uh, selection camp in Canada. I I think, I think I understand the rationale,
0: right? It, it's the elite competition. It's the elite of the elite going to the Paralympics, right? So just because you might have been on a team that won at the Parapan American Games doesn't mean this was necessarily the best collection of players in the country. So I understand the temptation to say, what if there's an emerging star? What if there was someone who had an injury in the summer of 2023, who's now going to be available in 2024 to be part of the Paralympic Games in Paris? So I get the rationale, Brock, but I'm going to bet bounce the question back at you from the perspective of someone who was an athlete. How would you feel if you were one of the people who qualified the country for the Paralympic games, but then didn't get to go represent the country?
11: This is a very, very tough pill to swallow as an athlete. You recognize that you did the, and I put this in quotes, the grunt work of getting the country qualified. And then You may have a bad selection camp. You may have a a bad national championships because a lot of these selection camps are coinciding with your national championships in some way. So your result at your national championships may impact your selection process or be part of it or a percentage of it. So there's a lot of pressure that gets put on team sports and the selection process itself. And it can be really, really something. Now, the name that comes to my mind uh, for uh, this particularly is Greg Westlake, who is the host of uh, Level Playing Field. If he was injured and, say, he didn't go to the qualification uh, side of things, then obviously that's a name that you'd look at and go, yeah, well, we're better with Greg Westlake on our team. So I think that's the part of this where you look at this and you say, well, Yes, there needs to be the equal opportunity, but there also needs to be the understanding that someone of of high, you know, uh, profile can be injured and can be needing needing the use of them. So mm. I, I do see both sides, but it is very very tough when you're not part of the qualification part of this. And yeah. I'll even throw a little bit of a wrinkle into this. Sport Canada, we we qualified um a team for world championships in in uh, bocce and uh 2020 uh, 2010 and we we qualified and most of us went to the tournament so but the 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 carding which is the funding that gives you the money per month they recognize the fact that you qualified so you get the money for the next year but then the selection camp may preclude you from going which means that somebody who might have a great event might go, but they're not funded by the government. So it's kind of a
0: double-edged sword in all this. Hey, Brock, you nor I are a sports psychologist by trade, but I think we've uh, watched enough sports in our life (laughs) that we have some sense of what it means to have a team dynamic. What do you think it does to a team dynamic knowing that maybe, like you said, someone's doing the grunt work but not getting the results or the reward at the end of the rainbow? I have... I'm I'm actually gonna put my opinion on this before you even ask yours, because I do wanna get mine out there and state it clearly. para-athletics is not some community uh charity service like elite para-athletes is para-athletics is just that it's elite so i think that i think that a lot of athletes understand there's always going to be someone coming for your spot in sports even if maybe the paralympics can sometimes be perceived as charity it's not it's elite sports
11: yeah and something that we often talked about during my career was from year in and year out, even though maybe, you know, 75% of your team might be the exact same from from year in and year out, when you add that one or two team member change, sometimes it can interject some some change and some youthism and all this, which is good. But if you're changing year over year and event over event, like we, we had a period of time where we would go to three or four events and you'd have to qualify for each event so from each event you could you could have one or two different teammates and that really makes it hard to get a rhythm going uh in how you want to qualify so yes i i do think that it can have a direct impact but from one event to another anyone can have a good or bad event or anything in between so it's kind of a, a real tough conversation but i remember it being very difficult when we would have one or two different teammates every event that we would go to And it just makes it hard to, you know, sometimes when you're playing team sports and you have those unspoken languages or unspoken words. Yeah. the yeah. way that you do things, you gotta you got to bring everybody up to speed very quickly. And that can be a challenge, too. Yeah, you know what? Maybe my
0: question was framed poorly, right? Because there's a distinction between team dynamics and team chemistry. Dynamics is something that probably occurs in the locker room. Chemistry is something that's a little more visible on the field. So I think you did a nice job drawing that distinction. Brock, tight for time here. Got to get out of here. But I do want to ask you the daily poll question. Uh, this is going to come up in the next segment with Marco Flalo of uh, Access Tech Live. It's about smart home technology Ikea is getting a little bit more involved in the smart home tech game with some new sensors and it begged this daily poll question At accessible media on Twitter at accessible media Inc on Facebook what is stopping you from investing in smart home technology the price security reliability or the answer that has been popping up more and more on the show in the last hour is nothing I already have some. Brock, I know you're one of the people who has smart home tech. How do you use it?
11: I use my smart home tech for everything. I will not use the trigger word, but I use Google as my uh, uh, smart home tech. And he slash she is very good with me. I use it for math. I use it for, you know, things that I need to find out. The part that drives me insane, Dave, is when you ask it a question and it said, I think this table has your answer. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't help me. I need the verbal answer of it. So sometimes me and my smart home device have a uh, not-so-nice relationship with each other, or if it doesn't listen to me or whatever. But, yeah, I do use it, and I really, truly enjoy it. Brock, have you taken the next step, like smart light bulbs
0: or smart locks, anything like that?
11: Uh, We had – we don't have it anymore, but we had one on our – our television because I would uh, drop the remote and then not be able to turn the TV on, which would be very annoying. Um, But yeah, I I don't use it more than that. I, I would like to, but that gets into the neighborhood of cost gets too much. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, so there is a level of like, there's only so far I can stretch, uh, stretch the old budget to, to buy these fancy little pieces of technology. Brock, I knew you'd have a great answer. Thank you for this. No problem. Talk to you tomorrow. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports
0: Desk. Coming up, the smart home tech conversation continues about some of IKEA's new affordable smart home sensors. Marco Flalo will share a bit of perspective. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. IKEA is expanding their presence in the smart home market. The company is introducing sensors that can offer insights on security issues around the house. The sensors are meant to be affordable at about $10 each. Mark Aflalo is going to offer a bit more perspective on the technology. Mark is the host of Access Tech Live, which you can find Thursdays, noon Eastern
10: time, on AMI TV. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Dave. I got to ask you a quick question before we even get into this. You ever watch a TV show and you like people are talking about something and you just want to get a word in edgewise? That's exactly how I felt when you and Brock were talking about smart home stuff. Sitting here waiting to go on, I'm like, I need to get involved in this conversation. (laughs) But Mark, there are bills to pay, so you've got to do the commercial break first.
0: That's what keeps us living our lavish (laughs) lifestyles of uh, me eating too many tater tots. Uh, Mark, let's uh, jump specifically into the IKEA side of this conversation. A full confession on my end, I didn't know IKEA was particularly involved on the smart home side of things. I thought it was more of the big tech companies. But these sensors individually, what kind of information are they collecting and communicating
10: so they're launching a line of three sensors there's a door uh door window open close sensor that does exactly what you'd expect it to do it detects when you open and close a door it's just a magnetic little contact that when something changes it alerts you that that door or window has changed there's a water leak sensor these are always great to have in bathrooms or places that you know that if it gets too far, I did this before I went to Miami last week. I put one near a certain bathroom, and I said if it water hits this point, we're just we we have very limited time to uh, to save the situation. so I put one out there um and uh as what does the water on uh, the motion sensor, so a motion sensor, obviously you know what a motion sensor is when someone walks by it or some kind of decks kind of motion, it will uh, trigger any kind of alert that something's going on there yeah so all that... pretty good and and you know. The, the, the regular stuff, you know, they used to have blinds and they have chargers and light bulbs, but this is their first time they're really getting into the sensor side of things.
0: Yeah, it's it's thinking more broadly beyond sort of, like you say, appliances exactly. or small appliances, but thinking about truly, like, again, I use the word security, right? I, like, I think about a yeah. leak as a security issue, uh, even though exactly. it's not someone robbing your house, it is someone destroying your things.
10: Well, these are the basics of a home security system, right? Yeah. You protect your doors, your windows, uh, emotion if someone comes in. And, of course, water breaking, that's just, you know, so, you know oh, gosh. peace of mind. <laughs>
0: uh, I, 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 I autobiographically had that happen three times to me over the course of 12 months, <laughs> and I was not a happy boy. Uh, Mark, w- w- when I think about these sensors, right, the way they're yeah. laid out and described, I say, okay, that's the use case. It makes total sense. But y- you're cooking up something in your mind about how they could be used in an unconventional
10: way. Well, you see, you know, the sensors are the gateway, the gateway drug into the automation side of things. And every platform now has some kind of automation support, whether it's your Echoes, your HomeKits, your Googles, et cetera, et cetera. There's ways because of these sensors that now exist at a very affordable rate. I mean, $10 is pretty much unheard of, to be perfectly honest. They're normally about $60, $70. Mm. And if you talk about equipping a whole home and trying to really do automation, that gets cost prohibitive, right? But now at $10 a piece, you can really have some fun with this kind of stuff. And and some, so you can have basic fun. So for example, you know, if a door opens, open the light that is as close to the door as possible. If motion is detected in a hallway, you know, turn on the light in the hallway and you can do that kind of stuff. Mm. I like taking things a couple steps further, you know? I like doing things like when motion is not detected after 7 p.m. in this particular room, shut down the main floor. So I'm taking it a step further where I'm saying I know that my kids forget the lights on. Right. So this is an opportunity for me to say, hey, no one has to run downstairs, turn the lights off and figure it out. We can take advantage of what these sensors do and don't detect, and when they do and don't detect that to trigger new kind of automations, um, so you can have a lot of fun with this kind of stuff, whether it's you know, uh, you know, a window is left open, so after 5 p.m., you want to get notified that that window is still open. A back door, you know, your your kids oh, are running around yeah. the center, yeah. and the door's not closed. You can even put them outside some of these sensors, not these particular ones from Ikea, but there are some, uh, uh, you know, higher class ones that work outside. Philips Hue makes these great ones, so if, you know, animals are detected in your yard, you can have a big floodlight turn on. Uh, I mean, and and... They're going to go further. They're going to have things like temperature sensors too. And that gets you into a whole new class of automations. For example, you can have a temperature sensor outside that says when the temperature drops below a certain um, you know, degree. And by the way, you don't even have to have the temperature sensor. You can tie things in to things online. So when the weather is detected in your area to drop below two degrees Celsius, for example, turn on the heated mats that are outside my house or raise oh the gosh. temperature in the oh house. Oh my gosh. There are so many things <laughs> you can do. And then you start thinking about accessibility. Think about somebody who takes five minutes to get to the front door. And then you start thinking about, okay, doorbell rings, turn a light on so I know that it's there, that someone's at the door, flicker the light. Maybe place a sound through a speaker when the doorbell rings or announce somebody um, or you know, oven left on or someone's in this room. There's so many things you can do. And really your brain is the only thing that's gonna limit you as to you know what you can and can't do or ideas that you'll come up with. Mark, I
0: think the synapses going through your mind right now have actually changed the color of your forehead. Like that, I, I cannot believe the brainstorming that just occurred right there. That was that was like some uh, Einstein level stuff right there. Theory of relativity kind of stuff
10: going on. Well, this is uh, where it gets Mark fun day, Flalo. right? This is where it gets beyond just, oh, I'm buying an accessory. This is like, okay, what can we do with this now? What can we actually play with, whether it's for accessibility or utility uh, versus fun? You know, there's so many things you can do. And, and like you
0: said, that leads back to the price point. Now, again, $10 yeah. is not nothing once you've bought 10 or 12 or 13 of these things. But the idea of putting 10 or 12 or 13 of these things around a house means you've created quite a bit of coverage because of that price point.
10: Well, think about it this way. You know, a modern day um, door window sensor was about $50, $60. Yeah. So you yeah. can now get six of those and cover more than a small apartment, most small homes, with under under $100. So that's pretty, pretty cool. And the fact that we are getting into a point in time in the technology where it doesn't matter what speaker you have, it doesn't matter what technology you use, because everything's slowly becoming cross compatible. Yes, again, newer items are becoming cross compatible. These items will be one of those items because they have matter and thread in them, which is a conversation for another day, but allows (laughs) them to be cross compatible with other devices means that you can not have to worry, oh, is this not gonna work with my Echo? Is it gonna work with my home? Is it gonna work with my phone, Android? You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. So, so it does get really exciting on both the playing aspect of it and also the utility aspect of it.
0: Mark, you mentioned before that IKEA does have a little bit of presence in the smart home market prior to this. As I mentioned, it was a bit of a surprise to me. I always thought of it more mm-hmm. as the big tech players in this space. How does this fit into I- IKEA's overall presence in the smart home market? And, and if I was to really get you to editorialize here, coming back to this price point, if you start getting these entrees into the smart home market, would that potentially increase IKEA's presence and overall market share? Because once somebody buys a couple hmm. of these centers, sensors, if they don't already have a hub, maybe they're just going to pick up the IKEA hub at the same
10: time. I think IKEA is going after the consumer that's already in the store and and will then realize wait a second they do. They're doing a little bit more than just this furniture that I'm never going to be able to move again because it will fall apart. Um, and 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 you know they started with smart blind. Actually, I think it was smart bulb first, and then they went to smart blinds. I actually have one in my office here that I never use, by the way. Um, smart blinds, <laughs> and now they have the sensors. So now they've really kind of completed that evolutionary circle of being able to now trigger and use their other products, right? Um, The price point is really quite honestly unheard of, but given IKEA's footprint and how they are truly a global company that has incredible mass manufacturing, I'm not surprised. I haven't used these yet, so I can't tell you, are they the best in the world? You know, um, how long does the battery last? Because they do run on batteries and you have to change that kind of stuff. But I can tell you that, you know, from my alarm system experience, you know, I've got a lot of wireless stuff in my house, just in the alarm system. I don't think I've changed a battery once in six years. Yeah. So um, in terms of IKEA itself, market share, they're not known as a smart home company, but they're known as a home company. Yes. Right? Yes. Home furnishings. So the smart part just makes sense. That's it. And, and he, if you're walking through those aisles and you start seeing this kind of stuff for ten dollars a sensor, you'll throw that in the basket. That's almost worthy to be next to the the uh, the gum at the end of the aisle. Yeah, that's you know, those, <laughs> it really is. I mean, at ten dollars, you're like, you know what? I'll get some Tic Tacs and a window sensor.
0: Yeah, if you're already buying a uh, thirty dollar lamp and a ten thousand dollar IKEA prefab kitchen, what's uh, ten dollars yeah. for a couple sensors and yeah, eighty dollars eighty dollars for the hub itself?
10: Uh, Mark, I mean, throw a sensor in a drawer, you open the drawer, an LED light goes on. <laughs>
0: Mark, yeah, there you go. I, I didn't realize that this Pandora's box was gonna get you so chatty. You're a chatty guy by nature, but I didn't know this was the Pandora's box that was really going to get you going. Uh, can't talk to you any longer though, because you have to start preparing for okay, today's fine. episode of Access Tech Live, which hits the airwaves on AMI TV at noon Eastern. You've yep. got me popping by for a couple minutes today, but what else do there you have to do?
10: Um, Arja Shepard is going to be by to talk about her gift guide. Derek Lackey is going to be talking about diabetes and accessibility. And, of course, we're going to be overall just talking about International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which is this weekend. So uh, all that coming up, including Dave Brown today. Including
0: Dave Brown. uh, I I deliberately ate lots of carbohydrates last night just to prepare myself for this technology talk. Mark, thank you for this. Talk to you in about uh, 95 minutes. Thanks, Dave. That's Marco Flolo. He's the co-host of Access Tech Live. You can find the show Thursdays at noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio on the weekends. This weekend, Joita Gupta is going to be chatting about aging and disability with Anne Leahy, a researcher at Maynooth University in Ireland. You can find The Pulse weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio or on all major podcasting platforms. Coming up next... The Holdovers is a holiday movie that's been garnering quite a few positive reviews. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will give you his thoughts on the film. But first, here is the Parasport Update with Greg Westlake.
4: Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in cooperation with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. The 2023 Parapanam Games wrapped up in Santiago, Chile on Sunday. Team Canada finished the event with 52 medals, 9 gold, 15 silver, and 28 bronze. Closing ceremony flag bearer Alison Levine captured two golds in Chile, one for her BC4 singles victory and one in Paris. With their win, Levine and partner Ulian Ciabano clinched a quota spot for Canada in Boccia BC4, Paris for Paris 2024. Also punching their ticket, the Canadian women's goalball team secured the gold and a berth at next summer's Paralympics. Unfortunately, three Canadian teams who had hoped to secure their own spot for Paris will now have to play in a last chance qualifying tournament in 2024. The wheelchair rugby team, the women's wheelchair basketball team, and the men's wheelchair basketball team still have some work to do. 13 Canadians are coming home from the games with multiple medals. Leading the way was para-cyclist Alex Hayward with four medals. And para-swimmer, Tyson McDonald 213. And that's our time for this edition of the ParaSport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports.
0: so many ways for you to get in touch with the show things you like or things you didn't if social media is your thing you can stop by on twitter at accessible media that's also the handle on tiktok at accessible media you can do the instagram and facebook thing as well at accessible media inc at accessible media inc on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to go slightly more old school, but not all the way old school, you can head over to your computer or your phone and fire off an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Or if you really want to make Alexander Graham Bell proud, you can pick up the phone and give the show a call, leave a voicemail, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545 please get permission to play your voicemail on the air. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. If you're looking for a new holiday movie that's a little less flashy, maybe a little less rom-com, The Holdovers is the one for you. The film stars Paul Giamatti and is directed by Alexander Payne. It's currently in theaters, Let's take a moment to watch a clip from the film. A student grimaces at the D minus he received on an exam. Other students receive an F plus, a D, a D plus. The last exam returned by the whistling teacher earned a B plus. The teacher goes to the lectern
4: and shakes his head. I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. I, on the other hand, am not, because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester. And even with my ocular limitations, I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. He
0: pulls glasses from his jacket. Sir, I don't understand.
4: That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely.
0: Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has thoughts on The Holdovers. He's in studio alongside his intervener, Jillian. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Michael, I'm great. Uh, Another one of these films that I've seen the trailer for going to other movies, and I found it to be appealing. I thought it was interesting. But do a little bit of setup on context for the premise of the film. What does the term Holdovers mean?
12: I think the term can mean two things. I think, first of all, it's similar to hold back, which was the idea that students may have to repeat a grade, especially before the new curriculum in Ontario, students did repeat grades in in this province before. Um, Hold back and hold over could also refer to um, things that are in the past that were still used today. So, for example, if there was a a TTC streetcar that was from the 1960s but was still using it today. That would be a holdover. How does
0: that term, or the notion of being held over, perhaps apply to many of the main characters in the film?
12: Well, first of all, the story is about the student who is forced to stay over for Christmas break because his family is not ready to take him home or doesn't want anything to do with him. And, as a result— Both his teacher needs to stay, and um, the cafeteria manager also needs to stay to feed him. Um, So all these three characters are perhaps wanting to do other things, but they're here. They they have no choice but to be here. And because they're here, because they're alone on campus, alone at Barton, um, they really have no one to answer to except themselves. And that means they come to -to face-to-face with some of the issues in their lives that they would be—you know, they would be quickly ready to distract themselves from.
0: The the film and the way that it's presented in the trailer looks like it's a little bit more character-driven, rather than big, massive plot points. How did that come across for you as an audience member?
12: Well, actually, first of all, watching the trailer with all of you today. I just kind of noticed that it's the anti-dead poet society, it's the anti-Robin Williams, Um, because Paul Giamatti plays Paul, who is a teacher who is very disenfranchised, is very—you know, he's out of it. He's, He's doing the same things every year. He's used to failing his students on a regular basis, because, of course, his teaching style is not inspiring or Catchy or anything like, you know, those inspirational teacher movies that we see. But that's the point. And he—this is not a spoiler—he's not going to become one of those inspirational teachers in any time soon, if at oh, So that's one of the characters. The other character I really wanted to mention is played by Devine Randolph, and she is the cafeteria manager. I'm very happy that they said cafeteria manager as opposed to lunch lady, Mm -hmm. because the cafeteria manager really highlights the complexity of her job. Mm -hmm. And so, her job is not only to run the cafeteria, it's also to try and overcome the death of her son, Curtis Lamb, who died in Vietnam. I didn't mention this, but this film—this film takes place in 1970. So all these characters are here, and all these characters, as I mentioned before, would like not to be there. But they are here, and they have to make the best of their time.
0: What did the Holdhovers have to say about disability, or make reference to, in regard to disability?
12: So, Po Giamatti's character has a glass eye, doesn't really get mentioned often or enough, or maybe—I mean, it might be just distracting at the best of times. So, I think it's just something that comes with the character. Um, also, Paul and the student Angus, they both have depression, and they're both taking medications for that, which were available in 1970. Mm-hmm. And of course, those were not the cutting-edge medications that we may have today. And they also did not know a lot about mental illness, as we do today. So there is some concern about the genetics of mental illness, which we responded to with that time's knowledge. But it's still a positive and uplifting film that knows its time and place. Mm.
0: I want to come back to the idea of a character-driven story rather than a plot-driven story. That's where you really need these actors to step up and be great. And Paul Giamatti is one of the best actors of his generation, like point finale, period. How did you think the actors held up in roles that were
12: really important for them? I think I would like to spend time with them. I think that's how good the acting was, Wow! Um, that I would, have, I would have taken a womb in that uh, dormitory. It's interesting, too, because they actually thought things too. because if a student is staying over at Burton, they changed his womb, they moved his womb, so that they, he would be closer to the teacher and the cafeteria manager, because otherwise you have an empty dormitory to yourself. That would be like The Shining. So, they really thought these period things too. And I, um, I like uh, Divine. Um, her character loves watching that dating game with that TV show. And they talk about that TV show where the spouses had to answer questions about each other. <laughs> and Divine and Poetry matches. Matthew's character, they just have a laugh because they're like, oh, this show would have caused a lot of divorces. And uh, Divine says, yeah, of course. Because nobody really knows anybody, mm. and so it's it's the opposite of the movie that we presented on last week. It's the creator which was all action and no character. There's a character and maybe a little bit of plot, and not so much action. But that's that's not the point. This, mm. The point is you're spend a Christmas break with people you're not going to have a lot of action unless you're Bruce Willis and Die Hard. <laughs> um, so I think. The main thing is that these, these characters feel lifted they feel like suits uh, shirts that people tried on and they inhabited completely, and you get to learn a bit about the time period, which I'm always happy about. Mm-hmm. You talked about the time period.
0: Obviously, it's set in the holiday season, and that creates one of the great debates in content, whether or not simply being set at the holidays makes you a holiday movie But let me ask you this. In a world with uh, a new Hallmark holiday film released every day between Halloween and Christmas and years' worth of previous content, and then, of course, all kinds of films about Santa Claus and reindeers and snowmen, do you think a film like The Holdovers could become a holiday classic?
12: I hope it does. I think it touches on many of the same issues as those other films, uh, but does so in a realistic manner. Um, I think ultimately the holidays are sometimes the most loneliness, um, loneliness periods of the year, and you know, for any student, for any boy or girl that has been forced to stay over on Christmas break, where all their classmates and friends get to go skiing in the mountains or get at least get to go home and see their mom and dad. Some kids don't even have a mom and a dad, right? Mm. So that might be a reason why it's day over on holidays as well. I think all that, as well as the, the families that have unfortunately lost a child for any reason, it's all here. It's all here. It's all the reasons why holidays would be so hard for some people. And the only way to make that easier for everyone is to find other people like yourself and spend time with them, even though you may not want to, because ultimately that's the best way to learn about other people.
0: Michael, I, I get the impression that it's not just that you recommend this
12: movie. You recommend people, like, run to the theater to go check this out. Yes. I also—you know, you have to be in the right mind. But if you're in the right mind, if, it, if, you're, if not, you're not looking for, like, a movie where Santa Claus is going to appear and throw presents at people's faces, then, um, <laughs> you know, this is this— this is a calm one, this is a, this is, you know, like you said, it's not flashy, but that's part of why it succeeds, because it was never meant to be flashy in the first place. Mm. So, you know, if you're in a right mood, this movie will do you well, and uh, I give it 4.5 out of five.
0: Wow, wow, that's, that's definitely high praise. Uh, Michael doesn't just toss out 4.5s out of fives, no doubt about that one. Michael, thank you for this. Uh, you've now added another movie to my list of things I need to catch up on between now and Christmas. And now we don't we don't have any monkeys with grenades in this one, so that is a little bit promising. You haven't gotten me off the creator yet. I still might watch the creator because I talking about monkeys and grenades uh, also appeals to me in my John Wick uh, brain. Uh, Michael, thank you for this. No problem. That's Michael McNeely, entertainment critic, with a review of the holdovers. You can find the holdovers in theaters. The one thing to note it is that it is rated R. Coming up after the break, Red Lobster, you know them, the restaurant, they're in hot financial water because of their latest all-you-can-eat shrimp promotion. Alex Smythe will de-shell this story as part of a round table chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Only a couple of minutes until this Thursday show is in the books, but then Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI. Ramya Emmuthin is the co host of that show and has a bit of insight on what's coming up at 2 o'clock. Hi, Ramya.
13: Hey Dave, yeah, today we have Fern Lallem joining us as she does every other Thursday. She's been joining us to talk about a lot of these, um, you know, emotional slash uh, psychological conversations. And today we're talking about defense mechanisms. Does oh, it make man. us more defensive to be people with disabilities? Yeah, I think short answer is yes, but we'll talk about why. <laughs> yeah,
0: mm-hmm. there's some layers to that. The short answer might be yes, but there is a layer or two to mm-hmm. that one. Yeah. It's a, it's an all-you-can-eat conversation, if uh, you will. And that relates to a topic that, Alex, you're bringing to the table here red lobster the restaurant and a little bit of financial hot water because people have big appetites
6: yeah dave so um red Lobster's latest promotion cost them millions of dollars (laughs) because they (laughs) underestimated people's appetite for shrimp go figure so brian clark serves up this story
4: Red Lobster lost more than $11 million in the third quarter. That's right after the restaurant chain put Ultimate Endless Shrimp on its everyday menu. Those two facts are connected, according to Red Lobster's owner, Thai Union Group. Its plan succeeded, getting more customers in. Traffic was up by about 4%. But this also forced Red Lobster to raise the price of Ultimate Endless Shrimp to $25. $25. Company leaders say that's something they must watch closely so they don't turn off their customers. Brian Clark, ABC News.
6: Yeah, so this got me thinking about all-you-can-eat uh, dining experiences. <laughs> Obviously, shrimp is very popular, but I want to find out what is the best type of food or what is what is the food that is most well-done by doing all-you-can-eat style. So, Nisreen, let's start with you. What is the best food for all-you-can-eat experiences?
5: I think everyone can agree with me when I say Japanese food. Yeah, all good answer. Eat.
0: Good answer. Yep.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but if you find an all-you-can-eat wings place, please sign me up. That's that's where I want to go. There, Is that there, a thing?
0: There are the occasional restaurants that do it. I just don't know if I want mass-produced chicken wings. I don't know why mass-produced sushi strikes me as different than mass-produced chicken <laughs> wings, but but it does, Ramya. Uh, Ramya, I'm 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 with Nizreen. I love me some all-you-can-eat sushi and more broadly, all-you-can-eat Japanese food. There, there's yep. a ton on the Danforth in Toronto that are just like out of this world, unbelievably good. Of course, Vancouver, British Columbia loaded up with them too. But I'm gonna go off the board a little bit because Nazreen had such a great answer. All you can eat South Asian food. There used to be this buffet in downtown Montreal and you're just loading up the curries and loading up like the onion bhajis. Oh, Ramya, delightful, (laughs) delightful afternoon. Horrible, horrible next morning.
13: I was going to say, if you can handle it, then yes, do it. But it is true. Um, like Indian or, you know, Gerard Street in Toronto, lots of oh, uh, all-you-can-eats, oh. hole holes in the walls around here that you can check out. And I agree, that would be my second choice after Japanese also. But there's uh, brunch you know like brunch places that do all you can eat that I've had limited experiences with but enjoyed nonetheless it's not necessarily for um the quantity though like you're not going to end up eating so much food right like that's not part of the factor but uh it's just fun to kind of have that as an option for all you can eat
0: yeah it's more of like a tapas brunch right so you're yeah. getting like a little eggs benedict or you're getting like a little piece of french toast or you're getting mm-hmm. like a little fruit plate yeah I, I'm, I'm down with that one too that's a cute little date a cute little date <laughs> (laughs) date brunch for, you know, you mature adults over here who can do things in the mornings on the weekends. Alex, Indian food, Japanese food, brunch, I mean, I think we're, like, on to something here. I I do think shrimp deserves its love. I've been to the Red Lobster Endless Shrimp back in the fall of 2017, and I think I ate, like, 40 pieces of shrimp, uh, and then immediately went home and went to bed, and it was, like, a happy, happy, happy night. I slept so well. I think I slept for 13 straight hours after I (laughs) ate all that shrimp. Uh, Alex, what about you? What's your answer? What's Style or food yeah. or type of food lends itself beautifully to all you can eat
6: well i want to add to all the options so i'm going to go off the board as well i'm going to go barbecue and ribs oh, because gosh. oh my gosh the yeah. constant ones, that you can always oh, get yes. good ribs and it can be all you can eat the wings it's it's along that same lines i love them you have to be wary mm-hmm. like sushi is phenomenal i i love all you can eat sushi but Yeah, there's just something about getting all the ribs, you get sloppy, you get all the sauce all over your your face, and then you just feel horrible afterwards. You're getting the meat sweats and everything, but (laughs) it's nice to look at all the bones after you've finished your meal and just start counting and then (laughs) feel shame and then go home. Yeah, you feel
0: like a Neanderthal after a fresh hunt, just throwing bones up in the air. (laughs) Uh, Be quick on this one, guys. Do you ever wish that more restaurants had those unlimited salad bars? Alex, yes or no?
6: absolutely there's sometimes
0: the best salad you can get yeah i love me a salad bar nazarene all you can eat salad bar of
5: course and i want varieties of options
0: Mm. yeah yeah, last word goes to you all you can eat salad bar you wish more restaurants would bring them back
13: I need the variety because I'm not going to just settle for whatever one, two kind of salads they Mm. have. I'm very picky. Mm
0: -mm -mm. Love it. Okay. We're all very hungry. You can tell. So let's put an end to this edition of now with Dave Brown and then pull out our phones and order some Uber Eats. The show comes back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.